at the core of it, defeating and and curbing the overdose crisis in this country is a social justice issue. Addiction recovery and and treatment and recovery support services have often been the stepchild of the American healthcare system. Like that can't be anymore. It's all intertwined. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. It was the crime of the century. Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, which is controlled by the billionaire Sackler family, was the hidden hand behind the national opioid epidemic that has destroyed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. The company deceived doctors and patients about OxyContin's addictive properties and rewarded high-volume prescribers. The company's aggressive campaign to push OxyContin fueled an epidemic of opioid addiction that has resulted in the deaths of over a half million people. Purdue Pharma filed for bankruptcy to protect itself from thousands of lawsuits filed by individuals, hospitals, and local governments. And in a settlement reached last month, the company was dissolved and the Sacklers agreed to pay $4.5 billion to settle claims. But the Sacklers, who remain among the richest families in America, was absolved of opioid-related liability. It appears that the criminals got away with the crime. Ryan Hampton knows this story firsthand. An alumnus of the Clinton White House, he became addicted to OxyContin and ended up unemployed and homeless. He has become an addiction recovery advocate and served as one of four victims appointed as a watchdog during the bankruptcy proceedings. He tried to ensure that justice was done, but found himself going up against powerful interest groups, including representatives of big insurance companies, pharmacies, and state attorneys general. He finally quit as the co-chair of the Unsecured Creditors Committee, and he wrote a book, Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis. Ryan Hampton is also the author of American Fix, Inside the Opioid Addiction Crisis and How to End It which came out in 2018. I began by asking Ryan Hampton to share his addiction story. Something I never would have imagined uh, would have happened and certainly uh, wasn't in the cards for me uh, young in life. You know, I um, had a a pretty normal upbringing, Um, you know, two hardworking parents um, lived in Miami, Florida, um, went to private school, you know, kind of overachieved. Um, things, you know, my father was a, was a stockbroker. My mom was a school teacher. Um, but things went upside down in my life. Um, when I was 12 years old, my, my father was actually arrested and incarcerated, uh, for several years for securities fraud. And my family's kind of seemingly lost everything, uh, overnight. And my mom was working three, four, five jobs to keep food on the table. And I was shifting schools and there was a lot of, uh, uncertainty in my life, uh, my younger years. And, um, it added a lot of trauma, you know, there was a lot of trauma early on in my life. So one of the things that I would do to get out of school, right. Uh, or out of self, um, and after school was, uh, I kind of latched onto politics and community organizing from a really young age. Um, I would leave school and I would go volunteer at political campaigns. I, I volunteered and interned on, you know, President Clinton's 1996 re-election. And when it came time for me to go to college, I wanted to get as far out of Miami, Florida, South Florida as possible. There was just too much bad going on there uh, in my life. And I wanted to move on and, you know, get a career in politics and organizing and, you know, all these big goals that I had. And I landed in Washington, D.C. And, um, while in DC, I interned at the White House and subsequently had a junior staff position at the White House uh, at the tail end of President Clinton's administration, and then went to work for the Democratic National Committee um, during the, the 2004 cycle. And when I was in DC in 2003. And while in DC working at the DNC at a pretty fairly high level job, fundraising job, um, I went hiking with a, a good friend of mine, my roommate at the time. And uh, I slipped and I, I fell and injured myself on that hiking trip. Anybody that knows the DC area was on the Billy Goat Trail, the super steep trail in between uh, Maryland and Virginia, and ended up in the care of an urgent care physician 
uh, right outside of Maryland and uh, injured. I had actually cracked my platella pretty bad and injured my ankle and they wrapped it up and put me in a boot and told me I needed to go get an MRI and um, also gave me a prescription right? For this really high grade opioid. I didn't know what the medication was at the time, but it was called Dilaudid, uh, also known as uh, hydromorphone, a uh, Dilaud brand product Dilaudid, which is many people don't know, also a Purdue product. And um, I never did go get that MRI done, but I did show back up for another prescription and another prescription and another prescription from that urgent care facility. Now, the real nexus of this story and where I got caught in really the, the storm was my father. Um, he had been released from prison and was, had been home for a couple of years. Um, he suddenly passed away. And um, I, it was post 9-11. Dad passed away. Mom wants me now to come closer to home to be back in Florida. Still had this issue with this bunk knee and bunk ankle. Um and I moved back home to South Florida. And if you know anything about the origins of the modern day, current day opioid crisis, you would know through you know some other reading and, and documentaries that have been out there that South Florida was the epicenter of the pill mill crisis, the kind of blossoming pill mill crisis that we had in this country. Um, and when I got back to Florida, I had gone to my primary care physician because uh, I had been taking these medications as prescribed for quite some time and said, you know, doc, I've got this issue with my ankle and my knee. I'm supposed to get this MRI, never did it, but I'm still in a lot of pain. Uh, where do I go? And, and doctor, my primary care physician, who I'd seen since I was in elementary school said, Ryan, I don't, I don't, you know, specialize in pain, but there's so many different pain physicians that you can choose from, um, you know, just look in the yellow pages or, you know, look on the back of the Miami new times, which was a, a, a weekly periodical in South Florida and you'll find, you know, find someone. And that's what I did. I, um, looked in the back of Miami new times, found a pain clinic, um, went right into that pain clinic. Uh, they, I thought it was a little awkward at first because they didn't really check me for anything or ask for any records, um, but they did say, Hey, look, you know, your, your, your ankle looks kind of consistently swollen here. Um, we're going to prescribe you these medications. Uh, you'll, you won't have to take as many of them. Um, and here's something for breakthrough pain. And I walked out of that doctor's office with my first prescription for Oxycontin, along with a whole other laundry list of, uh, medications. That's how I got caught up in it. And it beget at the beginning, I, you know, it sounds a little silly now with what we know, right? And, and what we know what was going on, but I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had no idea. And over time, as that medication started to wear off, they would prescribe me more medication, higher doses, titrate me up. I eventually got into a place where one doctor wasn't enough. And I had to go see two doctors or three doctors. And my use as prescribed turned into misuse. And now I was doctor shopping. There were more pain clinics, pain specific clinics, pill mills, I guess you could say, filled with these unscrupulous doctors. Uh, then there were McDonald's or 7-Elevens in South Florida. Oftentimes the pharmacies were in these clinics and still in that first year of doing this, I didn't connect what was going on with me with addiction, because I had a pill bottle with my name on it, right? It was prescribed to me. It was legally prescribed to me. I can remember, you know, the first year when I was in South Florida, I was still employable. I was still working. I was working on a congressional campaign, a, a member of Congress who was running for the United States Senate, right? I, I kept the bottle on my desk. There was no shame around it. I thought nothing of it. I didn't really realize until probably about 2004 middle of 2004, that I actually had a problem. Um, I can remember sitting at my desk and I had missed one of my doctor's appointments and I thought it was no problem. I would go in the next day and I started getting physically ill, like sweating and feeling like I had the flu. And I remember jumping on the internet and, and checking out all these symptoms and seeing that it was more than likely related to me not having the opioid in my system. And by this time, my brain was 
pretty much taken over, right? Like the first thought I had at that time wasn't, oh, I have a problem. I should probably, you know, call 1-800-REHAB or somewhere and see if I can get help. No, the first thought that I had was I need more. I need more so that I can feel well, so that I can work. And that turned into this very deep, dark spiral of what became, you know, my first attempts at treatment in the mid 2000s, multiple overdoses by 2005. I mean, it was a very quick uh, trip uh, down, down this, down this journey of just chaotic addiction and substance use disorder. I was unemployable, had lost my apartment, had been evicted, um, had my first bouts with homelessness, um, had pretty much, you know, gotten to a place where nobody wanted anything to do with me. And I was caught up in this South Florida kind of pill surge. Um, and what is the time frame that we're talking of here where you go from, that prescription for dilaudid uh, to give us a sense of how fast this happens. Sure, I mean the prescript from the prescription to dilaudid of dilaudid to the first prescription of oxycotton was within the first year. Um, the chaotic use of those prescriptions and the misuse of those prescriptions happened within about two years, two and a half years from when you first started taking oxy. From when I first started taking Oxy and that chaotic use of using those prescriptions, right, went on yeah. for several years because I had ample access to them through all of these doctors in South Florida. Where it really took a turn for the worse, though, was in 2008, the state of Florida decided they were going to fix this pill problem um, and institute the first uh, iteration of the prescription drug monitoring database which now does some good and collects some good data. But when they kicked it off, uh, it was identify all the people who are, you know, overusing pills, who are seeing more than one doctor, um, how many prescriptions they're getting, what doctors they're seeing, and basically kick them off the rolls, mm -hmm. you know, and create a, a felony for them if they see more than one doctor or are misusing their prescriptions. And I walked into one of my doctor's offices who knew full well what I was doing. <laughs> um, the, you know, the office was full of people who were dependent on those medications and who were misusing those medications. And it was right after the database went into effect and she pulled out this laundry list of doctors I had been seeing and had already collected my hundred or $200 cash for my visit. And I was dope sick at the time. Um, I was homeless at the time. Uh, I needed these medications. I was way beyond like the, the, the ability to choose, right. Um, you know, medication or no medication. Uh, it was an act of survival at this point for me. And she said, Oh, Ryan, you've, you've seen, you know, X, you know, X, Y, Z doctors. Um, I could lose my license for this. Did you know that? I said, yeah, doc, I know this. And, and so do you know this, you know, we, we've been doing this dance for quite some time. And she said, well, you're a junkie, you know, you're, 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 you're an abuser of these medications. Uh, if you show back up at this office, I'm going to have you arrested. And in fact, if you show back up at any office, pain medication office in the state of Florida, uh, I'm going to have a trespass order out for you. And you're going to spend a night in Broward County jail and let the judge deal with it, you know, get, get the hell out of my office. And I was like, but what about my medication? Like, you're certainly not going to like send me out here sick without my meds after I've paid you. And um, that's what she did. And, and that wasn't just happening to me at the time. It was happening to tens of thousands of people all across the state, seemingly overnight. Right. And we didn't just stop. I walked out of that doctor's office and there was somebody in the parking lot right there who was everybody who was coming out who said, look, I know you're sick. Here's something that can get you well. Here's my phone number. You know, it, it's cheaper. It's more accessible. Uh, I'll bring it to you, et cetera, et cetera. And it was heroin. Mm -hmm. And that kicked off, you know, several years of just this really awful period of my life where I almost died multiple times. Um, IV heroin use. I, I mean, it was a quick fall from someone who just a few years earlier, you know, had been like working in the White House and working at the DNC and, you know, all of a sudden was homeless on a street corner, 
you know, uh, panhandling so they could, you know, feed a heroin habit. It was awful. I mean, it's, it's, and you're saying in two years, you went from the heights of, you know, the White House to the streets of Miami. What made you seek treatment? And when did you finally get a handle on your addiction? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm coming up on like a really special time for me, like this time between like, uh, Halloween and Thanksgiving is always a trip down memory lane for me because, um, in 2014, I, I had, uh, left Florida, found my way out. I don't even remember, remember how, but out to Los Angeles, California in 2013, but I thought that I could like escape all my problems in Florida, picked up a job that I thought I'd be able, you know, I thought a job would fix my addiction issues, you know, kind of lied to my potential employer, ended back up out in California with nothing. And within a couple of months, you know, was no longer just homeless in Florida. I was, you know, at home, I was closer to home. I was homeless, you know, a couple thousand miles away in Los Angeles, California. And um, in October of 2014, I was on the streets. I had kind of a, a corner on Hollywood and Highland. Uh, where I would ask for dollars and ask for cash and, you know, uh, uh, roam the streets, use in kind of what they had as tent city. Um, and my, the only person that would talk to me would be my mother. Um, and I would call her regularly from this payphone um, in, in Hollywood. And she would beg me. She would say, I, I, I can't send you to treatment anymore. You don't have, I don't have money to send you. I, you know, you don't have insurance. Like you're going to have to find help or I know one day soon, I'm going to get this call that like you've been found on some street corner dead. And, um, I wasn't really absorbing the message of getting help because quite frankly, I didn't want help when I actually sought it. But what I did want was a roof over my head. I did want like a meal to eat. I wanted some sort of normalcy. I wanted a reprieve from this just chaotic use on the streets of Los Angeles. And so my mom, you know, helped identify a bunch of different public treatment facilities in Los Angeles County that might help me. And for pretty much the entire time between Halloween of 2014, leading up to Thanksgiving Eve, 2014, um, I would walk to, for those 30 days or so, a little bit less than 30 days, I would walk to that payphone at eight o'clock in the morning and make a phone call to a public treatment center in Tarzana, uh, which is in LA County to see if they had a bed available for me. Um, again, not because I wanted help or to stop using, I just was sick of living on the streets. And on Thanksgiving Eve, 2014, um, they said they had a bed. It was like 8 p.m. that night. Um, it just, you know, it, it, they were like, you have to be here by 8 p.m. Uh, we have a bed. We can detox you. Uh, don't worry about everything else. Just get here. Uh, and I remember I jumped a cab, got to the treatment center, checked in. Um, you know, they fed me that night. And I, and I remember putting my head down at bed being like, wow, I have, even though I was in a room with like 30 other guys, right, that I was sharing, I felt safe for the first time in probably 10 years. And um, sadly though, that treatment facility couldn't keep me longer than five days because I wasn't court ordered. All they could do was detox me. So uh, with the help of my mom, we found another treatment center that I was able to transfer to uh, that took me for, for about 90 days. And um, I actually claim my recovery date as February 2nd, 2015. Because, and I don't write about it in Unsettled or American Fix, but I actually, when I was in that second treatment center, was using, right? Like I was using other medications. I, I had no intention of like staying in recovery. I, I was just getting this reprieve and I got kicked out of treatment on February 2nd, 2015. And I had this, I, if there was a, an award for somebody in treatment who was less likely to, to, to succeed, it would have been me, Right. But there was a counselor in that treatment facility who came into my room as I was packing my things up. And I had all I had to my name was two trash bags who said, I know what you're about to do. I know you're about to leave here and you're going to go get high. Um, I could see it in your eyes. I could see it in your behaviors. 
but why don't you try one thing? There's a house a couple blocks from here. A bunch of guys in recovery live there. It's a sober home run by a friend of mine. I know you don't have any money, but I can get you in there right now. They'll help you find a job. You just need to stick with these peers that are in this house and just see how it goes. Just take it a day at a time. Well, I had nowhere else to go that day, but I did take, you know, her name was Shelly. I took Shelly up on that opportunity and someone came and picked me up that day. And um, I, I mean, it was a stroke of luck, stroke of grace, call it whatever you want. But one day at that house turned into two, turned into a month, turned into six months, turned into a year, eventually got a job, stayed at recovery residences, sober homes, a couple of them, because I had to switch around, but stayed sober and stayed in this safe housing environment for 18 months, you know, paying $150 a week when I was able to pay, driving Uber eventually, which was my first job, and eventually becoming the manager of one of these houses. Um, and it saved my life. You know, people say, did treatment save your life? Like, when did you get into treatment? I had been to treatment by this time, about a half a dozen times. I had always used when I left treatment, what saved my life was access to affordable, safe recovery housing. When I got out of treatment, it was access to Medicaid, which I relied on heavily for those first two years of my recovery. And I had all sorts of health issues coming out of treatment, including hepatitis, which, which, you know, had endangered my body significantly, but I was able to cure um, that those folks at that recovery house helped me find employment, which saved my life. These are the things though, that I advocate and I talk about a lot in unsettled. And I talk about in my, in my first book, because I've seen how it's not just about treatment. It's about leading people to purposeful, you know, fulfilling lives in recovery that really sustains our recovery. But it was in that experience of that first year in those, in that, that recovery house that I lost so many people that I cared about. Very good friends of mine, people I had lived with, roommates of mine that were being turned away at hospitals when they were asked for help, insurance that wouldn't pay for their treatment, kicked out on the street from treatment centers because they had done something like I did, which was use, and they weren't given a safe place to go and they died as a result of it. You know, those, it wasn't my own personal experience that led me into advocacy and activism around overdose and addiction and recovery. It was watching the people closest to me that I love lose their lives because the system was just built to treat them as like a second, third, you know, fourth class citizen here in the United States. Hmm. It, it strikes me that, you know, a big part of your story of recovery is people, sometimes strangers who wouldn't give up on you, which is remarkable because as you describe yourself, you're a pretty unlikable person at this point. You know, you're somebody who disappoints and betrays and lies to people. And yet these these people you cross paths with who just won't give up on you, um, that seems like a, a, a striking moment in your life. It is. And, and what I've learned, you know, over time is they were... This is why I'm such an advocate for people with lived experience involved in these decisions, right? Because that counselor saw herself in what I was about to do because she had been in the same boat or in the same shoes as I was at one point. That's why when I look at people who are, you know, struggling for help right now, I mean, there's a level of empathy between people with lived experience and those who are still seeking help that no public health professional, no politician, no judge, no court, no nothing can compare to. Because if you would have talked to, if you would have talked to some of the people who were talking to my mother at the time who wouldn't give up on me or talking to my counselor at the time who also wouldn't give up on me, they would have, they were giving the advice of Ryan's a hopeless case, (laughs) you know, He's going to have to hit rock bottom again. He's going to have to figure this out on him, you know, by himself again. And they didn't. And as a result of it, I'm here alive, right? I'm here alive, but not just alive and existing 
you know, I run a nonprofit. I, you know, I've done a tremendous amount of advocacy work, not just in this, you know, uh, uh, disaster called the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, but around addiction recovery. I've worked with, you know, the White House, the Senate, the Congress, state legislatures all across the country um, to pass forward thinking progressive legislation on how we treat substance use disorder and how people access care, you know, and I found a whole thousands upon thousands of people just like me, you know, who are eager not just to share our stories like this, you know, with you, but to turn our stories and our experience into action, right? Because at the core of it, defeating and, and curbing the overdose crisis in this country is a social justice issue, right? It is about access to healthcare. It is about access to jobs. It is about access to, uh, you know, health equity, housing, um, employment, job training opportunities, uh, you know, you name it, like almost every single, you know, major hot topic issue in this country has an impact on how people access care and how we treat overdose. You know, um, we can't look at them as these, you know, uh, addiction recovery and, and treatment and recovery support services have often been the stepchild of the American healthcare system. Like that can't be anymore. It's all intertwined. When did you go from addiction to activism? When did you put a name and a face to the problems that you were experiencing? You know, it first started um, in 2016. Um, I was about a year sober and um, I had become the house manager of the recovery, one of the recovery homes I was living in. It was a volunteer job. Um, got a couple dollars shaved off my rent at the end of every week. And um, I had lost uh, two friends of mine uh, within the, the, the time span of a couple of weeks. Uh, one, his name was Bear. I write about him in my first book, American Fix. And the second one was a friend of mine uh, named Nick. And um, when Nick died, uh, he, he had come home one night and um, he had, you know, was very honest with me. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm using again. I can't stop using. I don't know what to do. And um, I'm afraid to call my job because they'll fire me. Can't call my parents because they won't talk to me. Um, I don't have health insurance. I don't have the money. And I know that the house owner here, the person who runs, you know, the, the, the owner of this recovery residence won't let me stay here past midnight because that's the rules. And, and there was nothing I could do to change the rules. And all of a sudden, this young man, and he was only 24 years old, this young man's like fate was in in my lap. Like, what do I do? Like, how, how do I support him? How do I guide him? Well, I wasn't qualified as a healthcare professional or even as a certified peer at that point. I was just another person, you know, trying to get by in my own recovery. So there was a group of us that got together that night and we sat down with Nick and we talked to him. And the best idea we could come up with was that he would go to the hospital. And this wasn't just any hospital. It was one of the best hospital systems in Southern California. And it happened to only be about a mile away from the home where we were at. It's about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, we sent Nick there and Nick went there and he checked into that hospital. Uh, he told them that night, according to the hospital records, that he thought he was going to die. That if he didn't get help or a bed or some sort of help for his, you know, heroin, uh, IV heroin use, that he was going to die. They didn't even triage him to see a doctor that night. Um, he was seen by a nurse and discharged by the nurse the same time as he was doing an intake with just a piece of paper, a white piece of paper with a bunch of 800 mental health crisis lines that he could call the next day when they were open, if he was quote unquote willing to do that. And Nick walked out of that hospital. He had only been there about three hours with this kind of, when you're in a state of crisis, anybody who has been through that knows how useless that piece of paper is. Um, and went to walk home and used one more time and, and he overdosed and he died. And uh, they found his body the next morning, about three blocks away from, from the recovery house. And they came in to tell us that morning and circled us up to tell us that Nick had passed away and died of an overdose. And the owner of the home was sharing this story with me. And he said something like, 
you know, some people have to die so others can recover. And this is what happens. This is just what happens, right? These cliches, like make sure you get a bunch of suit guys, you know, nice suits guys, because you're going to have to go to a lot of funerals. And I can remember the rage in me when he, when he said that. And when he told me this story, because I thought to myself, that's no, that, 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 that's not like Nick doesn't have to die so that I can recover. Nick didn't have to die. So I could sit here and share this story with you. Um, This shouldn't be the norm. Like he was, he went to a hospital and he asked for help and he was turned away. Like what part of that story, what part of that is a reality that we should accept as a community. And I was angry. And a lot of my activism has been guided by that anger of that very day, that very moment. Now, the time frame of this is important because this was 2016. This was in the middle of a presidential election where overdoses and, you know, heroin and opioids had become like these political buzzwords. President Obama said it for the first time in his State of the Union that year. You know, uh, President Trump, Secretary Clinton. I mean, they all had 10 point plans on how to address the overdose crisis, mostly as a result of you know, people in, in the New England area and in New Hampshire, specifically in these town halls, standing up, talking about their loved ones that they have lost. You know, it, it, it became this, nat- like the platform, the national platform was launched during the 2016 presidential primary out of New Hampshire. You know, mm-hmm. I, I credit a lot, of the, a lot of the conversation as a result of, you know, brave men and women and parents and loved ones standing up and talking to these candidates. And and I thought to myself, I, I, not just myself, but our sober home, our recovery community, that we needed to get up and we needed to talk to our policymakers the same way people were doing in New Hampshire, but in California. Hmm. And uh, that summer, I, I, I drove across the country with my best friend in an RV and went into communities and uh, treatment facilities and jails and uh, stayed at homes of loved ones who had lost uh, their kids and, and brothers and sisters and parents to overdoses and just had these kind of, you know, uh, kitchen table conversations with them about what they were experiencing. What was the care like? What was the lack of care like? Uh, met with people in recovery. It was the first time I experienced that there was this kind of emerging national recovery movement. We traveled uh, 8,000 miles over 30 days in the summer of 2016 and put these videos up on YouTube. And when I came home and I was still living in, in a sober home, still driving for Uber, when I got home, I decided um, that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Hmm. You know, that I had been searching for this purpose my entire life, um, whether it be through politics or you know, and, and for sometimes it was, it was through drugs, you know, but, but it was really in front of me the whole time. It was, uh, you know, searching for solutions, but pushing for solutions to a mental health condition, a healthcare problem that I had, but on behalf of many other people. And that's what led me really into activism, really into advocacy. Um, and it, it is just, it is my primary purpose. Let's introduce the family and the company that has come to dominate your activism. The business infrastructure around addiction was provided by a company, Purdue Pharma, which was founded by the Sackler family. Who are the Sacklers? It's a great question. Um, You know, I didn't know until... 27. I I didn't even know who the Sackler family was until after I got sober, probably late 2016, early 2017 was really when I started to learn more about the Sacklers. And the more that I learned about them, the more they became the target of my ad, one of the targets of my advocacy and activism. So the Sackler family is the infamous billionaire family that controlled the board of directors and ran Purdue Pharma for decades. Purdue Pharma, the maker of Oxycontin, the maker of Dilaudid. Um, the, the Sackler family, you know, was kind of, you could think of the patriarch as Arthur and Raymond Sackler, right? Raymond Sackler's son, the infamous Dr. Richard Sackler, who ran Purdue 
for you know over two decades in one executive position or another. Why the focus has been so much on Purdue, right? And the Purdue story, as we're hearing in the media, is Purdue really went out of their way to weaponize the American medicine cabinet with their blockbuster drug, drug Oxycontin. They misled the American public intentionally about uh, how addictive it may be. They they put mis they put claims out there that said the the drug would it had less than a two percent chance of addiction when they knew that wasn't true. Um, they essentially bought off the Food and Drug Administration to get an approval on their drug. Dr. Curtis Wright, um, you know, and I write about Dr. Wright a lot in the book, and I know he's been talked about in other uh, forms of media as well. But Dr. Curtis Wright of the FDA, who wrote the drug approval uh, for Purdue in the late 90s, actually invited Purdue representatives to meet him at a hotel near the FDA headquarters in Rock Rock Park, Maryland, uh, and invited them to write the drug approval for the FDA. (laughs) Dr. Wright, you know, a couple years later, ended up with a $400,000 a year job at the FDA. Um, the black box warning uh, that that went on to Oxycontin's prescriptions um, was a, another huge opportunity uh, that led more people unwittingly into addiction. The pill mills that I've talked about and these kind of super prescribers in places like South Florida, uh, I didn't know at the time that those pill mills were directly incentivized by Purdue. Purdue knew how many pills were going in, how many Oxycontins were going into these communities, but they were all communities, but they were also uh, incentivizing the doctors who were coming out of retirement. It felt like to open these pill mills with lavish trips around the world, uh, cash incentives for speaking programs, uh, meals. I mean, it just insanity. What the Sackler family did is they perfected the art of marketing around these opioids. They marketed them as perfectly safe, perfectly normal for almost any ailment you could think of. Whereas when Oxycontin used to just, or, or medications like Oxycontin used to just be for like end of life care, cancer care, uh, extraordinary chronic pain relief, they marketed them as a cure-all for moderate pain, for any pain at all. I, I it, Oxycontin was so rampant in the 90s, it was almost as common as aspirin for many folks, right? Well, the Sackler family invented that. They invented that formula. Now, there's a lot of controversy around it because they skated a lot of laws. They broke a lot of laws. There's a lot of, I mean, the, the members of the Sackler family, quite in my, in my opinion, should be criminally charged for these actions. They shouldn't be able to just walk away and write a big check and never face litigation ever again for their role in this crisis. This, this, I, I sat face to face with members of this family. I write about it in Unsettled, right? I sat through every deposition on video call with members of the Sackler family. I had a one-to-one meeting with David Sackler. And in, in one word, if I had to describe them, they are evil. They are evil people. There's no other way to put it. What is the essence of that evil? Um, Mm. Why do you say that? Greed. Uh, The essence of the evil with with the Sacklers is just uh, a level of greed um, that I didn't know existed uh, in this country because it's greed on the backs of devastation and destruction of so many households, so many lives around this country. There were so many opportunities for the Sacklers to recognize the death and destruction they brought upon so many people because they were presented with that evidence for well over a decade. They knew what was going on. And instead of pulling back and correcting course, they doubled down because the payoff was so extraordinary. Explain when you say they knew, um, give us an example of what they knew. Right, so in the the 
early 2000s, the New York Times, you know, uh, it was Barry Myers, you know, uh, New York Times op-ed about what was happening in West Virginia with these coal miners and how, you know, there were there were just overdoses that were happening. People were dying left and right. And they were showing up, you know, when when police or EMTs would show up on the scene, they were showing up with Oxycontin in their in their pockets or a prescription for Oxycontin. The the uh, numbers of of uh, uh, foster you know foster cases just skyrocketed in small pockets around the country, and it was directly connected to where these you know whales of prescribers they called them super whales or super prescribers were 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 doling out these medications right. Um, there was empirical proof, empirical data of what was happening, um, that Oxycontin had a direct, you know, there was a direct line between these overdoses uh, and, and overprescribing. But instead of saying, hey, maybe there's something here, maybe we should correct this, um, Richard Sackler famously in a 2001 uh, memorandum, you know, said, you know, we need to hammer on the drug abusers. They are the criminals. They are the culprits. You know, this drug brings in a, in a, in a, a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, alleviating pain around the world. Um, when shift they knew the that, focus, shift the focus, shift the from focus, the perpetrator to the victim, right from the perpetrator to the victim. That's right. That's right. The, 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 but but you've got to remember that they were in this spot because like any other pharmaceutical company, Right. And some of them recognized what they did and started to put some safeguards in place. But Oxycontin was the only moneymaker for Purdue without like Purdue didn't just ha- they had a menu of options of other things they had tried and failed. But Oxycontin was the only medication that was making this company billions of dollars. What was the beginning of the end for the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma? So the beginning of the end would have been, you would have thought in a perfect world, the beginning of the end would have been in 2007, right? When they pled guilty for the first time around the mismarketing, around the misbranding, around the marketing issues, three executives pled guilty in federal court, the company pled guilty as a corporation in federal court. There were all sorts of uh, in, in the 2007 consent degree, degree there were um, uh, all sorts of uh, stipulations that the company had to abide by. And state attorneys general at that point um, were empowered as watchdogs, which is one of the reasons I, you know, I'm going to say I'm unsettled and I wrote unsettled because um, they, you know, they had a part to play to ensure this didn't happen again as well after 2007. In a perfect world, Purdue would have cleaned up their mess and we wouldn't have had to hear from them again after 2007, but instead they doubled down. They doubled down. They kept doing what they were doing. They got involved in this thing called practice fusion, which was a whole nother scheme of hoodwinking doctors and hoodwinking patients. And again, I'll put the mark on it as 2016, because as the overdose crisis became more in the forefront of the national conversation and the national dialogue, people started to look, well, who do we hold accountable for this, right? What do we do? And it was after that presidential election, right around the same time and shortly after that, these discussions around litigation started, right? And in 2017, the multi-district litigation uh, uh, started to take shape, which was all these governments, all these municipalities that had uh, bore the cost of, of so much of this devastation through social costs, criminal justice costs, you know, hospital costs, healthcare costs, Medicare costs, um, sued all the, all the pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributors together and, and created this one big negotiating class um, of all of them, of which Purdue Pharma was a part of, uh, Johnson & Johnson, Amerisource Virgin, you know, activists, you know, all the big ones. And um, unlike the other big pharmaceutical companies for this, and this is kind of par for the course for, for the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, they found an escape route out of that multi-district litigation. 
they found a way to uh, find refuge um, in a different court that would be more corporation friendly. Um, their balance sheet wouldn't cover the liability uh, that they were on the line for, for those 2,600 lawsuits. And they declared bankruptcy in September of 2019, which took them out of the MDL, the multi-district litigation, and put them into White Plains, New York, under the guidance and kind of being overseen by, you know, super capitalist friendly, corporation friendly uh, judge, uh, Robert D. Drain. And when this happened in September of 2019, I think there was this misconception that, oh, Purdue's going away. The Sackler family is going to, you know, pay the price. Their company is, you know, being, you know, burned up. Uh, they're they're going to be bankrupt. Hooray. No, not at all. It was this, just this is this is when this whole monster uh, again reaches out to uh, ensnare you because you become supposedly part of the solution. You become a member and then the co-chair of the unsecured creditors committee. So you get a seat at the table, one of nine people, which is where you sit across from the Sacklers and the Purdue Pharma reps. Um, what do you see inside that room? Um, as the title of the book goes, I was unsettled. It was nothing short of unsettling. Um, Oxycontin, Purdue, and the Sacklers in one form or another have been destroying my life, ruining my life for well over 15 years, 14, 15 years. This time in the last two years, it was just in a courtroom um, or in a mediation or in a deposition. <laughs> what I experienced was nothing short of sidelining the voices who most matter. You know, when I, when I was appointed by the Department of Justice, I, I had set my eyes on them, like I said, for some time, had this huge rally in 2018, largest, you know, protest in front of Purdue Pharma when they filed for bankruptcy, applied to the DOJ to get on this powerful committee, you know, that you could kind of see as if there was a plaintiff in the bankruptcy, this would be it. It would be the mega plaintiff. And um, I had thought, wow, isn't this great? All these state attorneys general, the Department of Justice, all these companies, all these victims, all these, you know, people who had been harmed by Purdue and governments who had been harmed by Purdue, we're going to take on Purdue and the Sacklers together. But the further I got into the process, the more I realized that actually victims, people who were harmed the most, we were there on our own because bankruptcy isn't created or isn't supposed to be an examination of facts. It's not a real trial. It's a fight for money. That's all it is. It's like this melting ice cube, right, of money and all creditors, right? And there were 600,000 creditors in this case, of which victims were 130,000 of those creditors, had to make the case why they deserve the most money. Now, in the multi-district litigation, there was no mechanism for individuals to participate. But in the Purdue bankruptcy, there were. So it was my opinion from day one that victims deserve the most and victims should be paid out first. But what I experienced was maddening. I experienced government, state attorneys general who said that victims actually deserved nothing. These same state attorneys general who were in front of the cameras saying they were doing this for justice for the victims were behind closed doors saying victim creditors deserve nothing. One of them actually, and I'll, I name check them in the book, um, said that we deserve nothing because we did this to ourselves. And states were making administrative claim over victim claims, saying they were the ones that provided the services and the healthcare services. So they should be paid out first. If there had been a, and, and I, and I, and in this opinion, how we were treated is a direct result of the stigma, the shame the systemic prejudice and discrimination against people who use drugs and people in recovery and people who have suffered from addiction. Because if there had been some chemical spill in New England, right, and some chemical company intentionally poisoned the water, and let's say the state of Vermont 
was going to go sue that chemical company. And the chemical company had to go into bankruptcy because they didn't have enough money to cover the litigation. Uh, do you think that the state of Vermont or the attorney general for Vermont, I'm just using Vermont as an example, but would get up in open court and say, we deserve 92.5% of the settlement from this water company and the 130,000 Vermonters who lost their lives or their families, they only should get 7.5% of the settlement because we want to build a better water system for the future. We want to make sure this doesn't happen in the future. That would never happen in any other mass tort case. Those victims would be paid out first and most, right? But because this is addiction, because this is overdose, because this is a really shady and you know gray area subject that people don't like to talk about very much, the government says that they should receive most of the money. Now, not to take away from them, they do want to do good things with the money to prevent this from happening in the future. But I need to remind your listeners and others that I agree with that, but I also pay taxes for those services. We shouldn't be taking the dollars from, you know, providing abatement plans on the backs of victims who should be receiving equitable settlement dollars as well. So what do victims stand to come away from this bankruptcy process with? Well, uh, close to nothing. Um, it, it is incredibly disappointing. Um, you know, if you lost a loved one to an overdose and you're able to prove it, you know, which a lot of people have a hard time uh, meeting that burden of proof because of statute of limitations around records in certain states, you could receive upwards of $48,000. For someone who experienced a life-threatening addiction like I did, it's probably somewhere around $3,500. The average payout is per family, uh, based on the 130,000 victims, is going to be about $5,000. Now, for comparison, for an, a, a recent bankruptcy case with an auto manufacturer where there were faulty seatbelts and somebody got in a crash and got as you know uh, uh, as much of a bruise on their shoulder, they could receive more money in that case than a family who lost their loved one to an overdose from <laughs> Oxycontin. That's just by comparison. But it's also important to remember for victims that all of these dollar amounts I'm talking about are before the lawyer, the lawyers take their haircut. Lawyers are going to take about a third out of this settlement. One billion, over $1 billion will be paid to a handful of less than a thousand lawyers and consultants in the Purdue Pharma case. Let that sink in. Over $1 billion to less than a thousand professionals in the case. 130,000 victim creditors will have to share in somewhere between 700 to $750 million. If that doesn't tell you, you know, what you need to know about how unjust the bankruptcy laws are in this country, like that should explain it all right there. So it seems that you were drawn into a process where the criminal got away with the crime and you signed the papers setting him free. Yeah. Absolutely. And I will say it, signing the paper, setting them free uh, is going a little far. We were actually left with no option. Um, we it, it felt like we were being held hostage. Um, if the Sacklers, and this is a very important point, did not receive their third party non-consensual release, meaning that they won't be sued in civil court for any other opioid uh, case going into the future, they would not have written that four and a half billion dollar check. The state attorneys general structured the settlement from before Purdue even went into bankruptcy, right? That victims, if there was any victim payment per their term sheet, it would come out of the Sackler contribution to the bankruptcy. So without the Sackler contribution to the bankruptcy, victims receive zero, nothing. States and government and corporations take all the money. I write about it in Unsettled. We went through, I went through every single scenario trying to lobby these attorneys general 
to figure out a different payment mechanism for victims to receive money the same way they're getting their money, which is through the future sale of Oxycontin, the future proceeds coming out of Purdue. These same state attorney generals who are crying foul with the Sacklers said they would not give victims their, their payments out of the same mechanism they're receiving it. So without the Sackler contribution, we get nothing. Now, I also played the ball down the court. What happens if we say, no, screw it. Like the Sacklers, you know, lose the Sackler contribution. Uh, let's, you know, remove them from the bankruptcy. Well, eventually the Sacklers are just going to find their way into bankruptcy court themselves. Because let's remember here and not get this confused. No one has pressed criminal charges, which is something that I didn't have the power to do in the, uh, as, um, as a member of the committee. The DOJ has the power to do that. State attorney, 50 state attorneys general have the power to do that. That's what many victims actually really want to see, but no one has pressed criminal charges, indicted the Sacklers, made them sat for, made them sit for a grand jury. So if we didn't accept the release from the Sacklers, victims would have received nothing. And it was a bad deal. It was a bad deal made with even more, with, with even worse people, but we were left with no option. Now there is no criminal release. So I'd like to say to any attorney general listening, you know, to this show today or department of justice, and I've said it loudly, get your act together and charge this family because you still can the way that this plan was, was, was written. This confirmation and, plan was written. And that's really the only way you see justice being done. So first, just to put a, a an exclamation point on what you just said, when you were asked whether um, Purdue Pharma should stop selling Oxycontin, you were forced to say no, because that is the the revenue from that is the only way that victims get paid. Right. That and also the, the, the Sackler release. And, but it's, you know, Purdue will no longer operate in its current form. So as of right now, as a part of the confirmation plan, the, the, the company is not even called Purdue anymore. It's NUCO. It's got some new fancy name. It's actually owned by state attorneys general. It's owned by the government. Like the, 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 like the government now owns the company formerly known as Purdue Pharma. And they are selling Oxycontin to fund this settlement. The important distinction here, though, is that Oxycontin as a product, opioids as a, as a medication are not inherently bad. They have done and provided tremendous relief for many people around the world. And opioids have been around since pre-Civil War. The problem was the marketing mechanism behind them and the weaponization, like I said earlier, of the American medicine cabinet and what the Sacklers did to get the medication, you know, into communities, right? That, that, that's where the, 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 the medication became deadly. I want to ask Ryan, the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma have been famously aggressive going against people who criticize them, going after reporters and going after activists. How did you experience these aggressive tactics? How'd they come after you? Oh, this is such a good question. So um, before getting into the bankruptcy, um, I would, anytime I would mention Sackler or write about them, and I wrote about them plenty, um, I would get letters from their lawyers, you know, similar to like a cease and desist. There was a time in um, 2017, right, or sorry, in 2018, right after the release of American Fix, where I thought I was being followed by somebody and I'm not like conspiratorial, like, you know, I, you know, Nan Golden was experiencing it. Um, we now know Patrick Braden Keefe with, with his most recent book had, his, had experienced it. So like in 2018, when it happened to me, I don't feel like I'm crazy. When I joined the committee um, appointed by the DOJ, I disclosed this to lawyers, you know, that at one point I actually thought my email had been compromised, right? Like I was receiving all these super weird, you know, fishy, um, things coming to my email. And like, all of a sudden, all my, my private information was exposed. I mean, there was just weird things that were happening that were right along the timeline of certain op-eds I was writing about the family or actions I was taking about the family. Now, when I got into the bankruptcy, my social media 
was monitored like you could not believe. I mean, if I said anything on Twitter or Facebook about the Sackler family within 30 minutes, I was getting a phone call from committee counsel saying the Sackler family or Sackler lawyers saw you said this. What do you mean by this? And I just, I I blew a gasket at one point, you know, with the lawyers and just told them to like step off my constitutional rights that I had still the, you know, I still had my free, you know, my right to free speech. Now going into publishing unsettled though, I was convinced that there would be legal issues because I did violate all sorts of confidentiality orders and protective orders to write the book. However, strategically, (laughs) the Sackler family has decided not to even touch unsettled, like go after, they want to bring no attention to this book whatsoever. It is all factual. I know a lot more than they'd like me to know. They don't want to bring attention to it. For the most litigious family who has gone after me in the past, past, and most litigious company in Purdue, arguably we've had this decade, for them not to say a peep about Unsettled, I think says a lot about what's actually in Unsettled and what I still know. Now they have... I wouldn't be surprised, David, if you get a note note from them <laughs> about this episode, because media that I have talked to, they've opted to go after the media, right? And say, well, Ryan Hampton said this, or Ryan Hampton said that, and you know, try and correct the record, but they won't come to me individually. Um, and that is by that is a very, you know, uh strategic uh decision by them because they don't want to bring more attention to this book. They don't want people to know what a sham this process actually was. There's a a very, you know, kind of bleak view of what you're saying here, where essentially criminals got away with the crime. What do you want readers to come away from this story knowing as the moral of the story? It is a bleak view, you know, and I hate having because I'm someone who usually likes to lead with altruism and hope but this process left me so battered in what I learned and how you know I would go as far to say corrupt these systems are that are built to favor big money and let people like the Sacklers off the hook however the book wasn't written just for the purposes of telling this story it was hopefully that people after they read unsettled are as enraged as I am that they can move their feet to action. There's several opportunities right now um, in terms of how we address the overdose crisis. And I talk about a lot of them in Unsettled on what we could be doing on a federal and a state level. If you would have told me two years ago when I started this journey that I would have walked out of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy and one of my main goals for 2021 to 2022 would be around bankruptcy reform, I would have told you you're crazy. But in fact, that is something that I believe we need to take on because if we don't look at bankruptcy reform, specifically chapter 11 cases with companies that are as awful and have had such egregious behaviors as Purdue and families like the Sacklers, this process will continue to repeat itself. It's happening right now in the Boy Scouts case. It's happening in the Weinstein case. I mean, these are two bankruptcies that are a little similar to what's going, we're seeing it happen in J&J, right? There was just that announcement around the talc powders and how they're creating this bankruptcy class around there. If we don't have meaningful bankruptcy reform that makes it harder for bad actors and big corporations like Purdue Pharma to find an escape hatch, this will continue to happen. If we don't make it harder or add layers of judicial review around releases for families like the the Sackler family, for the criminal actions that they've taken, that they're getting away with by just writing a four and a half billion dollar check, that will continue to happen. If we don't address um, the, 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 the venue, court venues, um, and, and judge picking in bankruptcies, Purdue will continue to happen. Look, I, if, I, if I get caught with a crime or my friend gets caught with a crime and, and we're, we're facing a charge, I don't get to go to court and say, I want judge X, Y, and Z because judge X, Y, and Z has a good record on dealing with cases like mine. 
right? I don't get to pick my judge. Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family got to pick their judge, right? That's an issue that needs to be taken on. So there's a lot in this corporate bankruptcy world that allows, you know, these these just egregious behaviors to take place. And it needs real reform. I've had conversations with the House Judiciary Committee. There's several bills making their way through Congress right now. Um, I, I hope that Unsettled, you know, has taken a very complicated issue um, and really broken it down into a human way and narrative way that people can understand why this system is broken and why it needs more reform. Um, that That's my hope because bank, bankruptcy is not an easy subject to talk about. It was very hard to write the book, you know, um, but I feel like walking out of this, I've, I've kind of, you know, I'm, I'm like somewhat of an expert on like how awful the bankruptcy system is in this country, which is not something I would have expected uh, when I entered the case two years ago. Well, Ryan Hampton, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Ryan Hampton is the author of Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Mm